57. We were wont to smile upon them, and they saw but mirrors of their own sad lineaments. Some laughed in mockery of their sorrows, as though they thought that mirth would come for asking, others, grown brutal by being caged, made up in noise what they lacked in peace. How comfortless they seemed. The only solace that the eye could trace was the odious herb, tobacco. I have climbed the dark and narrow stairway that led to a modern helicon, there I have seen the gentle creature that loved nature for her beauty beauty that was to him apparent. Although he sat hemmed in by bare and tattered walls, yet there he had seen bright fountains sparkle and the earth robe herself with life. And where the cunning spider spread her filmy toils above his head, he has seen a world of light, a galaxy of wonders. The din of wheels and the harsh discordant cries of busy life have died within his ear, and the tiny voices of corral birds have hymned him into peace, or the lettered eloquence of dread sages has become sound again, and he has communed in the grove and temple as they of older time did in the eternal cities, with those whose names are immortal and there I have seen the humble pipe, the sole evidence of luxury or enjoyment, when his daily task was suspended, it can never end, for he must weave and weave the fibers of his brain into the clue that leads him to the means of sustaining life, I have wandered through lanes and fields when the autumn was on and the world golden, and my journey has ended at a yeoman's door, my welcome has been a hand grasp, that needed bones and muscles to bear it and flinchingly my fare the homeliest, but the sweetest, and when the meal was ended, how has the night wore on and then away over a cup of brown October the last autumn's legacy and, forgive me, M. line, a pipe of tobacco, glorious herb, that hath oft times stayed the progress of sorrow and contagion, akin once consigned thee to the devil, but many a humble, honest heart hath highly thee as a blessing from the Creator. I was introduced by my new acquaintance without much ceremony, and was pleased to see that little was expected. We meet here thrice a week, said Bonus, just to a while away an hour or two after the worry and fatigue of business. Most of us have been acquainted with each other since boyhood and we have some curious characters amongst us, and should you wish to enroll your name, you have only to prove your qualification for this holding up his pipe, and we shall be happy to recognize you as Apoth, the star system. Sir Peter Loring having observed a notice in one of the journals that the superior planets, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, are now to be seen every evening in the West, dispatched a messenger to them with an invitation to the late Polish ball, sagely remarking that three such stars must prove an attraction. Upon Sir Peter mentioning the circumstance to Hobler, the latter cunningly advised Alderman Figaro in order to prevent accidents to solicit them to come by water and accordingly Sir Peter's carriage was in waiting for the fiery stranger at the Limerick Mares. The borough of Limerick at present enjoys the singular advantage of having two civic heads to the city. The new mayor, Martin Honan, Esquire after being duly elected, civilly requested the old mayor, C.S. Nerecker, Esquire to turn out, to which he as civilly replied that he would see him blessed first, and as he was himself the only genuine and original donkey. He was resolved not to yield his place at the corporate manger to the new animal. Thus matters remain at present the old mayor resolutely refusing to take his head out of the halter until he is compelled to do so. More sketches of London life. By the offer of the great metropolis, it is a remarkable fact that, in spite of the recent act, there are no less than 300 sweeps who still continue to cry, sweep, in the very teeth of the legislative measure alluded to. I have been in the habit of meeting many of these weeks at the house I use for my breakfast, and in the course of conversation with them, I have generally found that they know they are breaking the law in calling out, sweep, 
but they do not raise the cry for the mere purpose of law-breaking. I am sure it would be found on inquiry that it is only with the view of getting business that they call out at all, and this shows the impolity of making a law which is not enforced, for they all know that it is very seldom acted upon. The same argument will apply to the punishment of death, and my friend Jack Ketch, whom I meet at the frog and frying pan, tells me that he has hanged a great many who never expected it. If I were to be asked to make all the laws for this country, I certainly should manage things in a very different manner, and I am glad to say that I have legal authority on my side, for the lad who opens the door at Mr. Adolphus's chambers with whom I am on terms of the closest intimacy thinks as I do upon every great question of legal and constitutional policy, but this is neither here nor there, as my publisher told me when I asked him for the profits of my last book, and I shall therefore drop the subject. In speaking of eminent publishers, I must not forget to mention Mr. Catmulk, to whom I owe a debt of gratitude for having been the first to introduce me to the literary career I have since so successfully followed. I believe I was the first who carried into effect Mr. Catmulk's admirable idea of having the last dying speeches all struck off on the night before an execution, so as to get them into the hands of the public as early as possible. It was, moreover, my own suggestion to stereotype one speech to be used on all occasions, and I also must claim the merit of having recommended the fixing a man's head at the top of the document as a portrait of the murderer. Catmuck and I had always been on the best of terms, but he is naturally rather angry that I had not always published with him, which he thinks and many others tell me the same thing I always should have done. At all events, Catmuck has not much right to complain, for he has on two occasions wholly repainted his shop shutters from effusions of mine and I know that he has greatly extended his toy and marble business through the profits of a poetical version of the fate of Fondleroy, which was very popular in its day, and which I wrote for him. I have never until lately had much to do with pence, of seven dials, but I have found him an intelligent tradesman, and a very spirited publisher. He undertook to get out in five days a new edition of the celebrated Pennyworth of Poetry, known some time back, and still occasionally met with as the three yards of popular songs, which were all selected by me, and for which I chose every one of the vignettes that were prefixed to them. I have had extensive dealings both with Pitts and Catmuck, and in comparing the two men, I should say one was the Napoleon of literature, the other the Mrs. Fry. Catmuck is all for dying speeches and executions, while Pitts is peculiarly partial to poetry. Pitts, for instance, has printed thousands of My Pretty Jane, while Catmuck had the execution of Frost all in type for many months before his trial. It is true that Frost never was hanged, but Blakesley was, and the public, to whom the document was issued when the latter event occurred, had nothing to do but to bear in mind the difference of the names, and the account would do as well for one as for the other. Catmuck has been blamed for this, but it will not be expected that shall censure anyone for the grossest literary quackery, active benevolence. The success of the Polish ball has induced some humane individuals to propose that a similar festival should take place for the relief of the distressed Spitalfields weavers. We like the notion of a charitable quadrille or a benevolent waltz, and it delights us to see a philanthropic design set on foot, through the medium of a galopade, a dance which has for its object the putting of bread in the mouths of our fellow creatures, may be truly called punches estiolamaciacholology. Lecture I doctors Spurgeon and Call have acquired immense renown for their ingenious and plausible system of phrenology. These eminent philosophers have by a novel and wonderful process divided that which is indivisible, 
and parceled out the human mind into several small lots, which they call, organs, numbering and labeling them like the drawers or bottles in a chemist's shop, so that, should any individual acquainted with the science of phrenology chance to get into a lot is vulgarly termed, a row, and being with all of a meek and lamb-like disposition, which prompts him rather to trust to his heels than to his fists, he has only to excite his organ of combativeness by scratching vigorously behind his ear, and he will forthwith become bold as a lion, valiant as a game cock in short, a very lad of wax, ready to fight the devil if he dared him, in like manner, a constant irritation of the organ of the narration on the top of his head will make him an accomplished courtier, and imbue him with a profound respect for stars and coronets, now if it be possible and that if island no one will now attempt to deny to divide the brain into distinct faculties, why may not the stomach, which, it has been admitted by the Lord Mayor and the Board of Aldermen, is a far nobler organ than the brain, why may it not also possess several faculties, as we know that a particular part of the brain is appropriated for the faculty of time, another for that of wit, and so on. Is it not reasonable to suppose that there is a certain portion of the stomach appropriated to the faculty of roast beef, another for that of devilled kidney and so forth? It may be said that the stomach is a single organ, and therefore incapable of performing more than one function. As well might it be asserted that it was a steam engine, with a single furnace consuming Whitehaven, Scotch, or Newcastle coals indiscriminately. The fact island the stomach is not a single organ, but in reality a congeries of organs each receiving its own proper kind of element, and developing itself by outward bumps and prominences, which indicate with amazing accuracy the existence of the particular faculty to which it has been assigned. It is upon these facts that I have founded my system of stomachology, and contemplating what has been done, what is doing, and what is likely to be done, in the analogous science of phrenology, I do not despair of seeing the human body mapped out, and marked all over with faculties, feelings, propensities, and powers, like a tattooed New Zealander, the study of anatomy will then be entirely superseded, and the scientific world would be guided, as the fashionable world is now, entirely by externals, the circumstances which led me to the discovery of this important constitution of the stomach were partly accidental, and partly owing to my own intuitive sagacity, I had long observed that duty, my soul's far dearer part, entertained a decided partiality for a leg of pork and peas pudding to which had a positive dislike. On extending my observations, I found that different individuals were characterized by different tastes in food, and that one man liked mint sauce with his roast lamb, while others detested it. I discovered also that in most persons there is a predominance of some particular organ over the surrounding ones, in which case a corresponding external protuberance may be looked for which indicates the gastronomic character of the individual. This rule, however, is not absolute, as the prominence of one faculty may be modified by the influence of another, thus the faculty of ham may be modified by that of roast veal, or the desire to indulge in a sentiment for an omelette may be counteracted by a propensity for a fricando, or by the regulating power of a Strasbourg pie. The activity of the omelette emotion is here not abated, the result to which it would lead, is merely modified. It would be tedious to detail the successive steps of my inquiries, until I had at last ascertained distinctly that the power of the eating faculties island sideroise paradus, in proportion to the size of those compartments in the stomach by which they are manifested, I propose at a future time to explain my system more fully, and shall conclude my present lecture by giving a list of the organs into which I have classified the stomach.
according to my most careful observations, class I sustaining faculties, 1, bread French rolls, 2, water doubtful, 3, beef including rump steaks, 4, mutton legs thereof, 5, veal stuffed fillet of the same, 6, bacon including pork chops and sausages, class I.I., sentiments O.R. affections, 7, fowl, 8, fish, 9, game, 10, soup, 11, plum pudding, 12, pastry, class I.I.I., superior sentiments, 13, sauces, 14, fruit, class I.B., intellectual tastes, 15, olives, 16, caviar, 17, turtle, 18, curries, 19, gruyere cheese, 20, French wines, 21, Italian salads, 22, of the last organ I have not been able to discover the function, it is probably miscellaneous, and disposes of all that is not included in the others, fashionable intelligence, by the reporter of the court journal, yesterday Patty Green, Esquire gave a grand general officiat to a distinguished party of friends, at his house in Bear Street. Amongst the guests we noticed Charles Mears, J. and Mr. Jim Condell, Bill Paul, Deathburg, Esquire Jerry Donovan, M.P.R. Herr Von Joel, and C. and C. Mr. Jim Condell and Jerry Donovan went the odd man who should stand glasses round. The favorite game of shove halfpenny was kept up till a late hour, when the party broke up highly delighted. A great party mustered on Friday last, in the new cut, to hear Mr. Briggles chant a new song, written on the occasion of the birth of the young prince. He was accompanied by his friend Mr. Handel Purcell Mozart Muggins on the drum and mouth organ, who afterwards went round with his hat. On Friday the lady of Patty Green paid a morning call to Clare Market, at the celebrated trite shop, she purchased two slices of canine comestibles which she carried home on a skewer. Mrs. Patty Green on Wednesday visited Mrs. Joel, to take tea. She indulged in two crumpets and a dash of rum in the Congo. It is confidently reported that on Wednesday next Mrs. Joel will pay a visit to Mrs. G at her residence in Bear Street, to supper, after which Mr. Patty Green will leave for his seat in Maiden Lane. Jeremiah Donovan, it is stated, is negotiating for the three-pair back room in Surrey, late the residence of Charles Mears, J.M., from the London Gazette. November 16th, Promotions, Post Office, First Body of General Postman Timothy Sneak, to Broad Street Bell and Bag, Vice Jabez Broadfoot, who retires into the Chandlery Line, Horatio Squint to Lincoln's in Bell and Bag, Vice Timothy Sneak, Felix Armstrong to Bedford Square Bell and Bag, Vice Horatio Squint, Josiah Claypole from the Body of Letter Sorters to Tottenham Court Road Bell and Bag, Vice Felix Armstrong, N.B. This deserving young man is indebted to his promotion for detecting a brother letter sorter appropriating the contents of a penny letter to his own uses, at the precise time that the said Josiah Claypole had his eye on it, for reasons best known to himself. The Tuppany postmen are highly incensed at this unheard of and unprecedented passing them over, and great fears are entertained of their resignation. French living, ha, said an interesting little polyglot, down in the west, with his French rudiments before him. Why should one egg be sufficient for a dozen men's breakfasts? Can't say. Child. Because you and oof is as good as a feast. Stop that boy's grub. Mother. And say that at once. He's too clever to live much longer. Hints on popping the question. To the bashful. The hesitating. And the ignorant. The following hints may prove full. If you call on the loved one. And observe that she blushes when you approach. Give her hand a gentle squeeze. And if she returns it. 
consider it, all right, get the parents out of the room, sit down on the sofa beside the, most adorable of her sex, talk of the joys of wedded life, if she appears pleased, rise, seem excited, and at once ask her to say the important, the life or death deciding, the suicide or happiness settling question, if she pulls out her cambric, be assured you are accepted, call her, my darling Fanny, my own dear creature, and a few such like names, and this completes the scene, ask her to name the day, and fancy yourself already in heaven, a good plan is to call on the object of your affections, in the forenoon propose a walk mama consents, in the hope you will declare your intentions, wander through the green fields talk of love in a cottage, requited attachment, and rural felicity, if a child happens to pass, of course intimate your fondness for the dear little creatures this will be a splendid hit, if the coast is clear, down you must fall on your knee, right or left there is no rule as to this, and swear never to arise until she agrees to take you, for better and for worse, if, however, the grass is wet, and you have white ducks on, or if your unmentionables are tightly made of course you must pursue another plan say, vow you will blow your brains out, or swallow arsenic, or drown yourself, if she won't say, yes, if you are at a ball, and your charmer is there, captivating all around her, get her into a corner, and, pop the question, some delay until after supper, but, delays are dangerous, round hand copy, the young ladies, tears, when accepting you, mean, I am too happy to speak, the dumb show of staring into each other's faces, squeezing fingers, and sighing, originated, we have reason to believe, with the ancient Romans, it is much practiced nowadays as saving breath, and being more lover-like than talking, we could give many more valuable hints, but punch has something better to do than to teach ninnies the art of amorithing, the romance of a teacup, sip the second, now harems being very lonely places, hemmed in with bolts and bars on every side, the fifty-two who shared teapot's embraces were glad to see a stranger, though a bride and so received her with their gentlest graces, and questions though the questions are implied, for ladies, from Great Britain to the tropics, are very orthodox in their choice of topics, they asked her, who was married, who was dead, what were the newest things in silks and ivories, and had why white who had eloped with Zebin yet forgiven, and had she seen his liveries, and weren't they something between grey and red, and hadn't Z's papa refused to give her his, so high son told them everything she knew and all was very well a day or two, but, when the multifarious forsook Bohe, Pekoe, and why relief done P.O.W. dear, to a revel in the lip and sunny look of the young stranger, spite of all they vowed her, the ladies each with jealous anger shook, and railed against the simple maid aloud, ah, this woman's pride is a fine thing to tell us of but a small matter serves her to be jealous of, one said she was indecorously florid one thought, she only squinted, nothing more, a third, convulsively pronounced her, horrid, while Bohe, who was low at four and four, glanced from her fingers of Pat High Sons Ford, who, inkling such a tendency before, cared for no rival's nails but paid her own, particular attention to her own, well, this was bad enough, but worse than this were the attentions of our ancient hero, whose frequent vow, and frequenter caress, and welcome were for anyone to hear, who had charms for better pleasure than a kiss from feeble daughter ten degrees from zero, so, as one does when circumstances harass one, High son began to draw up a comparison. Was ever maiden so abused as I am? Teased into such a marriage than to be dosed with my husband twenty times per diem. With repetitor hostas after tea. And, if he should die, 
What can I get by him? A jointure's nothing among fifty-three. I meek enough but this I cannot bear. I wish, I wish, I wish a girl might swear. In such a mood. She stop. I'll wend my pen, for now all our preliminaries are done. And I am come unto the crisis. When her fate depends on a kind reader's pardon wandering forth beyond the ladies ken. She thought she spied a male face in the garden she hastened thither she was not mistaken. For sure enough. A man was there a raking. A man completely was who owned the visage. A man of thirty-three. Or maybe longer so young. She could not well distinguish his age so old. She knew he had one day been younger. Now thirty-three. Although a very nice age. Is not so nice as twenty. Twenty-one. Or so. But of lovers when a lady's caught one. She seldom stops to stipulate what sort of one. Now. The first moment high son saw the gardener a gardener. By his tools and dress she knew she felt her bosom round her heart in a just as if her heart was breaking through, and so she blushed, and hoped that he would pardon her intruding on his grounds, so nice they grew. Such roses, what a pink, and then that peony, might she die if she ever looked to see any. The gardener offered her a budding rose, she took it with a smile, and colored high, while, as she gave its fragrance to her nose, he took the opportunity to sigh and high sun's cheek blushed like the daylight's clothes. She glanced around to see that none were nigh, then sighed again and thought, although a peasant, his manners are refined, and really pleasant. They stood each looking in the other's eyes, till high sun dropped her gaze, and then good lack love is a cunning chapman, smiles, and sighs, and tears, the choicest treasures in his pack. Still barters he such baubles for the prize, which all regret when lost. Yet can't get back the heart of a matter in a bosom though some folks won't believe it till they lose em. Love can say much, yet not a word be spoken. Straight, as a wasp careering stayed to sip the dewy rose she held, the gardener's token. He, seizing on her hand, with hasty grip, the stem swayed earthward with its blossom. Broken, the gardener raised her hand onto his lip, and kissed it when a rough voice, hoarse with hellos, cried, Hark I fellow, I'll permit no followers. Songs for the sentimental. Number 11 the lists were made the trumpet's blast rang pealing through the air. My squire made lace and rivet fast and brought my tried distrayer. I rode where sat fair Isidor in as Matilda Borghese. From spur to crest she scanned me o'er. Then said, he's not the cheese. Oh Mary mother, how burned my cheek. I proudly rode away, and vowed, woe's his eye who dares to break a lance with me today. I won the prize. Revenge is sweet. I thought me of a ruse, I laid it at her rival's feet, and thus I cooked her goose. S-I-B-D-H-O-R-P's corner. What difference is there between a farrier and Dr. Locock? Because the one is a horse shore, and the other is a cow shore. Akusher. Why is the Prince of Wales Duke of Cornwall? Because he is a miner. Bar that. As the sheriff's officer said to his first floor window. Kings and carpenters. Royal and vulgar conspirators. In a manuscript life of Jemmy Twitcher the work will shortly appear under the philosophical auspices of Sir Lightingale and B.U.L.W. we find a curious circumstance, curiously paralleled by a recent political event. Jemmy had managed to pass himself off as a shrewd, cunning, but with all very honest sort of fellow, he was, nevertheless, in heart and soul, a housebreaker of the first order. One night, Jemmy quitted his respectable abode, and, furnished with dark lantern, pistol, crowbar, and crepe, joined half a dozen neophyte burglars his pupils and his victims, the hostelry chosen for attack was, the Spaniards, the host and his servants were, 
however, on the alert, and, after a smart struggle in the passage, the housebreakers were worsted, two or three of them being killed, and the others save and except the cautious Jemmy, who had only directed the movement from without being fast in the clutches of the constables. Jemmy, flinging away his crape and his crowbar, ran home to his house he was then living somewhere in petty France went to bed, and the next morning appeared as snug and as respectable as ever to his neighbors. Vehement was his disgust at the knaves killed and caught in the attack on the Spaniards, and though there were not wanting bold speakers, who averred that Twitcher was at the bottom of the burglary, nevertheless, his grave look, and the character he had contrived to piece together for honest dealing, secured him from conviction. Jemmy Twitcher was what the world calls a warm fellow. He had gold in his chest, silver tankards on his board, pictures on his walls, and more. He had a fine family of promising Twitchers. One night, greatly to his horror at the iniquity of man, miscreants surrounded his dwelling and fired bullets at his children. The villains were apprehended, and the hair of Jemmy who had evidently forgotten all about the affair at the Spaniards, stood on end, as the conspiracy of the villains was revealed, as it was shown how, in anticipation of a wicked success, they had shared among them, not only his gold and his tankards, but the money and plate of all his honest neighbors, Jemmy. Still forgetful of the Spaniards, cried aloud for justice and the gibbet. Have we not here the late revolution in Spain the Cuiwi and ISSED conspiracy and in the prime mover of the first, and the intended victim of the second rascality, King Louis Philippe, the Jemmy Twitcher of the French, the commission recently appointed in France for the examination of the communists and equalized operatives, taken in connection with the recent bloodshed under French royal authority is another of the 10,000 illustrations of the peculiar morality of crowned heads. Here is a sawyer, a cabinet maker, a cobbler, and such sort, all food for the guillotine for attempting to do no more than has been most treacherously perpetrated by the present king of the French and the ex-queen of Spain. How is it that Louis Philippe feels no touch of sympathy for that pusillanimous scoundrel just? He is naturally his veritable double, but then just is only a carpenter. Louis Philippe is king of the French. The reader has only to read Madrid for Paris has only to consider the sawyer when he set the poor tool, trapped by just, the murdered Don Leon, or any other of the gallant foolish victims of the French monarchy in the late atrocity in Spain, to see the moral identity of the scoundrel carpenter and the rascal king. We quote from the report, when he set alias Don Leon examined, just said to me, pointing to the body of officers, you must fire into the midst of those, I then drew the pistol from under my shirt and discharged it with my left hand in the direction I was desired. O'Donnell, Leon, Oari, Biorae, F-U-L-G-O-S-I-O, drew their pistols at the order of Louis Philippe and Christina, and merely fired in the direction they were desired. Where was this society the ouvriers egalitaires held? Generally at the house of Columbier, keeper of a wine shop, Rue Traversier. What formed the subject of discourse in these meetings? When you were there, different crimes. They talked of overthrowing the throne, assassinating the agents of the government shedding blood. In fact, for the Rue Traversier we have only to read the Rue de Courcelles for Columbier the wine cellar, Christina X Queen of Spain. As for the subject of discourse at Her Majesty's Hotel, events had bloodily proved that it was the overthrow of a throne the murder of the constituted authorities of Spain and, in the comprehensive meaning of Quenisset, shedding blood. In fact, at the wine shop meetings the French conspirator tells us that there was an old man, a locksmith, who would read revolutionary themes, and electrify the souls of the young men about him. 
the locksmith of the Rue de Courcelles was the crafty, sanguinary policy of the monarch of the barricades. We now come to Amadie Amicio alias Queen Christina. Do you know whether your comrades had many cartridges? I do not know exactly what the quantity was, but I heard a man say, and, Madame Colombier also boasted to another woman, that they had worked very hard, and for some time past, at making cartridges, Madame Colombier, however, must cede in energy and boldness to the reckless delivery of the Spanish ex-queen, for the cartridges manufactured by the wine seller's wife were not to be discharged into the bedroom of her own infant daughters. They were certain not to shed the blood of her own children. Now the cartridges of the Rue de Courcelles were made for any service. One more extract from the confessions of the alias Don Leon, at the corner of the Rue Traversier I saw just, August, and several other young men, whom I had seen in the morning receiving cartridges. Upon my asking whether the attack was to be made, just answered, yes, he felt for his pistols, my comrade got his ready under his blouse, I seized mine under my shirt, just called to me, there, there, it is there you are to fire, I fired, I thought that all the others would do the same, but they made me swallow the hook, and then left me to my fate, the rascals, poor Don Leon, so far the parallel is complete, the pistol was fired against,